Good morning. And uh, if you're worried about the time, I usually preach for a very short period of time, so we'll get you out of here on time, I think. Um, and uh, as, I, as I was preparing for, for this, I felt like God was telling me to actually go back and, and talk about something that I've talked about, I think it was like five years ago. So if you've been in the church for a while, sorry, you may be getting some, some concepts again. Because we had Michelle wonderfully speak last week, and then we had Ken speak for the two Sundays prior to that. And in both of those, I believe it was in both, it was definitely in one, and the other time he mentioned it, it could have been in the weekend, so I just want to be accurate, that he mentioned the gift of faith. And he used it as a reference, but I wanted to talk about that a little bit and explain it to folks. And my goal is honestly just to see if I can stir your spirit, because I love when that happens to me, and so I'm going to do my best to to see if we can do that to you guys. So I'm going to be talking about your anointing, and this is something that I can't help but talk about kind of constantly because it's just a part of me. I've talked I've up here before about whether you're in business or ministry, and I'm going to talk about your anointing that's on you, and I'm going to talk about the gift of faith. And I'm going to go back and forth between these two subjects, and I'm going to do my best to show that they're weaved together and that it doesn't come across as manic. But uh, so just, you know, Bear with me, and if you have ADHD, you'll probably follow along just fine. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I'm going to pray just because I want to. So, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word, Lord, and I will share, Lord, what I believe you've prepared, but I just publicly yield my agenda to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time just because we're going to have a little exercise. If you're not able to, don't worry about not standing. But I want you to repeat after me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for I am anointed. You can sit down. Okay, what does that mean? What is the anointing? One of my favorite quotes on this is, the anointing is what enables us to labor without having to apply any special effort. In other words, the anointing is some, a little something extra working for you. It's like the military term, a force multiplier, which implies um, it increases the effectiveness in combat, meaning you can accomplish more with it than you can without it. That's what the anointing is. So we're going to start with David as a reference point. So in this point of the story, David is a, a young boy. He's a young man. And he's out on the hills tending sheep. He's kind of hanging out in the lover's zone, playing the harp, writing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that we'll all we'll live for eternity. And then what happens? Samuel comes actually out of retirement. And I love the part of the story because he scares the entire, like all of Bethlehem. And he has to do this in a clandestine way. He brings some meat. He's like, don't worry, we're going to have a feast. It's not going to be a problem. But he's really there because God told him to go anoint the future king of Israel. And so he goes to Jesse's house. And, you know, he's, he's walking through the sun parade. And which I really think is really funny here because Jesse discounts his own son. He doesn't even bring him in to the sun parade. But yet he finally, you know, Samuel has to say, do you have anyone else? Because I didn't get the nod. So then, of course, Jesse goes and he brings in David from the fields, and Samuel physically actually anoints him. What I love about this is that it's not the biggest and the strongest and the most successful that God anoints. 
He anoints all of us. And in this case, it was actually the least of those things. But we're all anointed. All right, yes, thank goodness. So what we see here when the anointing actually, physically is upon David, what happens next? David's back out in the field. He's back in that lover zone. And he takes a break every now and then to play the harp for Saul, calm him down. But what happens? A lion comes and a bear comes. And then David kills the lion. And he kills the bear. Now, I'm going to need some help here because I'm lacking experience here. So is Chris. We talked about this earlier. I've got four daughters, and so does he. So in my house, there's like a lot of Victorian tea parties. It's, it's a very... I don't have time to get into it. It's, I don't know what this is like. So is the, would this be normal behavior for a teenage boy? I mean, outside of South Africa, I think Clay had one as a pet. Right? He named it David, which is weird. But uh, that's not normal behavior, right? Even, even in, in playtime, my kids don't pretend to slay uh, bears and lions. Maybe they do, but this isn't the normal behavior. So if we're going to agree, if you'll indulge me, just agree with that for a minute. Then I think about it from an economics perspective, the sheep, right? This is part of the wealth of the family. This is how they make money. And there, this couldn't have been the first time a lion had come or a first time a bear had come. They had wolves. There's disease. You know, you lose sheep. You have to lose sheep once in a while. So David could have just said, let me take the 99. You have yours and you'd put one in the lost column and tell dad about it later. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't put one in the lost column. He kills the lion, and he kills the bear. So if we agreed that that's not normal behavior for a teenage boy, then what was it? Was David naturally just more courageous than everyone else? You know, I think about the disciples. Saw everything Jesus did. Saw people raised from the dead, and yet they fled for fear of Jews. Maybe they're more scary than lions and bears. I don't know. But is David just naturally more courageous or did he slip into something that enabled him to have an anesthesia towards fear? It's called the gift of faith. What is that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, two, 12 uh, I think it's 2, uh, we see that it's listed as one of the gifts of the Spirit given for edifying the body of Christ. So the gifts of the Spirit or enable us to have an anointing. And in the area that you're anointed in, the gifts of the Spirit will make, lack, will make up for the lack of human ability. And not only will they make up for the lack, they will enable you to go farther than anyone else can in that area. Who gets the glory? God, of course, in the end. But do people know it? Not always at the beginning. And I've, again, I've preached about what your calling is, because I think it's important for folks, which is the most of us, not in ministry. Most of us are not in full-time ministry, but in the marketplace, in business. And I just want to say that it's actually okay to be covert sometimes. You don't have to be overt, even about your faith. And I, this is maybe shocking to some folks, and, and I'm going to give examples on both sides, because this is not a one-size-fits-all. I'm just giving you one perspective. I'm going to try to give you multiple, but it's not one size fits all. So don't hear what I'm not saying. And if you're called to evangelism and you want to stand on the corner on King Street with a sign that says free prayer, I'll volunteer Aaron to go help you and you can pray for people. The anointing can be on you for that. Hallelujah. 
But for others, and for the most of us, I think there's opportunities for those of us called into business to influence through our own anointings, to see the giftings come alive and see the kingdom of God penetrate the areas of darkness and take back the territory that's been yielded to the enemy. Let's look at the Bible for a reference here. Let's talk about Esther. I'm, being, I'm getting a signal to slow down. I'm verbal processing here as my wife's giving it to me. But she also told me to get out of here on time, so... I'm already in internal conflict. Back to, the, back to here. <laughs> Esther, by the way, was uh, a great story on this. She's the great stealth operative because the name of God isn't actually mentioned a single time in the book. Not once. And if you haven't seen the theatrical performance by Sight and Sound, it's absolutely worth it. Esther gets into the kingdom through a beauty contest. And the name of God isn't revealed one time. She doesn't even reveal she's Jewish until the right time, until she's again uh, gathered immense favor all along the way. And even with the king, until Xerxes, when she says, I just have a request. He says, you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. The favor was absolutely on her, and she established that credibility. So what's my point here? The supernatural operating through you builds a platform for credibility and influence so that you can go deeper within a structure. And then, again, through that uh, flexibility, you can share the gospel anytime you want. But if you feel a compulsion to be leading with it, or that you have to be witnessing all the time, I just want to submit that you may be missing the depth and extent of what God's inviting you into. And my belief in this season for the church, it's for more. We never lose the perspective that we're here for souls in the kingdom. <clears throat> but like Esther, we don't need to manifest all we're about until we've established that credibility by the supernatural moving through you. A few other examples would be Daniel and Joseph. The Bible says that Daniel had an excellent spirit. He was wise. He operated in the power from God, but it wasn't until he actually interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar that he revealed it was God the one giving him the answers. He wouldn't have been able to get to the king if he hadn't established all that credibility. In fact, it was the, I forget the guy's name now all of a sudden, but the guy that came and got him was like, hey, we need help. Come interpret this for for the king. So he had done it previously, shown that he was capable of doing it, and then he was invited to do it for the king. He had gotten to the highest realm of influence. And Joseph also had an excellent spirit. I love this guy. And if you're in business, you have to love Joseph. He's like the patron saint of the marketplace movement. You can't keep this guy down. He's got the determination of Colonel Sanders and the ability of Jeff Bezos. You can't keep this guy down. He refuses to die. <clears throat> His brothers put him in a pit. He comes out into Egypt. They put him in a field. He comes out in charge of Potiphar's house. You put him in the prison. He takes over the prison. You put him in the basement. He takes over the entire nation. You cannot keep him down. I've talked about this several times, even in the men's group, so apologies if you're hearing it for multiple times, but I love it. And the very nature by Joseph's spirit of excellence is the Hebrew word yatir. The literal translation is that which sticks out further or juts out further. It's actually the same term in the New Testament in the Greek, hyperbole, and the literal translation would be a throwing beyond. So in first century Greek culture, it would be like a weight that they would throw, and in modern times, it would be called a shot put in track and field of the Olympics. And what they would use to, to, to or when they would use this term, it would mean that it was thrown and it went conspicuously further than everyone else did. In other words, Daniel or Joseph or both stuck out in the group of peers. 
So Daniel and Joseph were conspicuous among their peers. They were exalted to high places through the supernatural giftings moving through them. And then at the right time, they reveal who they really are. Okay, back to David and the gift of faith. While it's a gift of the Spirit, according to Corinthians 12.8, I said it was two, it's actually eight, that some are given kind of all the time. Everyone can still have opportunities to receive the gift of faith for a particular situation. When the bear and the lion came, David operated in the gift of faith. What was God doing? He was training David to kill a giant. How? By giving him opportunities or yeah, experiences, sorry, to, to operate at one level of authority so that he would be confident operating at the next level. This is why it's really important not to ignore the opportunities God gives us. That's our training ground. And the gift is so amazing. What motivated David was not just straight courage, because even the disciples fled for fear. <clears throat> I lost my place, sorry. Yes, even after they saw people from the dead, they martyred at a different time. That was the gift of faith. And the gifts of the Spirit are meant, are, sorry, are a major part of your anointing. The gift of faith is so precious, because when you have it, here's maybe one way you'll know you'll have the confidence to solve a problem before you know what the solution is. Look at David again. He didn't have a strategy when he saw Goliath because I don't think he would have put on Saul's armor. You know, it was too big. It'd be like me wearing Clay's coat. That's a short joke, just to be clear. Okay, so he had no strategy. What he had that was the gift of faith to know the giant has to go. He can't defy his God and stay standing. What he didn't have was a plan, but he had training. When it came to, um, when it came to Goliath, the, when the territory that David was anointed to be the future shepherd of or the future king of was invaded by something that wasn't of God and it attacked or it threatened that which was his stewardship, he had an anger that came upon him that enabled him to deal with something much larger than him so that he didn't feel fear. He simply dispatched and destroyed what the enemy sent into his backyard. We're called to do this when the enemy puts a focus on what's our stewardship, on your marriage, on your children, on your career. I'm definitely talking to the guys here. When the enemy wants to take over the territory that you have stewardship over, I think it's time that the men stand up and dispatch ourselves to destroy the influence of the enemy. And we're yielding. All right, so wherever God's called you to go and whatever you're anointed to do, whatever that is, business, volunteer, ministry, a charity, school, whatever it is, even if you don't know how you're going to get something done, if the gift of faith is in you or it's on you, you'll know that you can solve a problem before you have a strategy. I find that this actually happens even a lot in prayer. <clears throat> and we need to be really wise because we can't actually guarantee anything when we're praying for people. I mean, we should, they should be guaranteed to feel loved when they walk away, but it's God that does the work, right? Not us. So they should feel loved, but we can't guarantee them anything. And I think this is what Ken was referencing in one of the times when he was, preaches, when he was preaching. And sometimes when you're, when you're praying and you just know that you know that you know that you know God is going to shift something. You don't even know what you're going to say yet, but you just know it's going to happen. It's like a righteous anger comes on you that this is not okay anymore. Whatever this is dealing with, it's going to shift. 
before you even know what you're going to say. I think Ken explained it perfectly about that. It's like it comes from deep within you. It's before you know it, you're already ready to just deal with it. You don't have to declare it. I just submit to you to be obedient about it. It's probably not wise to declare it because, again, we're all learning and growing in the Spirit. Because this comes with experience and time. And it's really about fine-tuning your spirit to be sensitive to what the Lord is doing and saying, and that comes through spending time with Him in His Word, in worship, in His presence. You see, these gifts are free. And we saw Ken, is Ken here? He told me he was going to be here. I'll deal with the Ten Commandments and him next time. <laughs> we saw Ken minister wonderfully the other weekend. And lots of people were set free. He's anointed in that area. Some of you may have that same gifting. May have a different calling. Not everyone's called to go to different nations. But you want to have the same gifting. So I do want to honor him in this way. Because the gifts are free. But maturity in them, that comes at a cost. That comes through a sacrifice of laying a lot of other things down over and over and over again. So when we see people operating in that level of authority, it should encourage us to press in and get them more. All right, so we're going back from gift of faith to anointing. In the beginning, we stood and we said that we were anointed. At least I heard a lot of you say it. And I find that sometimes it's not really always easy to know where your anointing is. So if you're wondering that, here's one way you might be able to know. Charles Finney is my favorite quote on this. The desire for something, the persistent desire for something, is an indication of what heaven is putting on your heart. In other words, desire for a believer, repeated desire, is a signal from your future about your calling to your present. The fact that it's repeated just means that there's, uh, God has a season for it to manifest in your life. And when we doubt it, it's because we don't have a confidence in our own desires. Well, what are our own desires? Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, sometimes people translate that as God will answer the prayers on your heart. At least I heard that kind of growing up. I believe a better translation is God is the one planting the want to or the desire in you. God gives you the desires. It's not that God gives you what your heart desires, but rather God is the one. I'm going to say it the correct way, sorry. Uh, rather, God gives you the desires that your heart is longing for. And as believers, we find that we disqualify ourselves from stepping into that anointing. We talk ourselves out of it because of our past. You say, I'm not worthy, or I'm not qualified, I'm not ready yet. <clears throat> the secular world would never do that. Has anybody ever asked for a raise before? There we go, raising hands, I love it. Everyone, if you haven't, go ask for one. <laughs> Doesn't always work, but you don't get what you don't ask for. And all your bosses can hate me later. But we actually self-sabotage and end up agreeing with the devil about why we're not qualified. And we think, if I just pray a little more, when I memorize more scripture, or I make more money, or just fill in the blank and whatever doubts in your mind. Making sense? 
All right, Deuteronomy 8 says, The Lord tested you to humble you, that you may know what man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's paraphrased slightly, but you can read it in verses 2 and 3. What we see here is that the collective screw-ups of the Israelites was meant to teach them to not rely on themselves, but actually on God. And of course, Jesus repeats this salient line to Satan, and it's his turn in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So I think it's time we understand it. Because we know that the enemy comes with guilt and condemnation. But there's no condemnation in Christ. Conviction, but not condemnation. Now, I have to give my mother the credit here. She's in the service today, so you can go give her a hug afterwards. But uh, she deserves the credit because, I, you know, I don't know if it's fair to say she beat it into me, but... Um, yeah, uh, let's say instilled. How about that? Um, oh, sorry. She instilled this truth into me over and over and over and over again. As a young boy, she was determined to make absolutely sure I knew it, without a doubt. And I cherished this, because as I grew older and my world got bigger, and I chose to experiment and experience things that weren't beneficial to my walk with the Lord, I knew exactly how to find my way back. She's crying. That's not really fair to look at your mother crying because it's going to hit me now. <clears throat> um, I always knew how to find my way back with a simple conviction. I knew that there was no condemnation. You know, of course, I wasn't proud of the things that I had done, but I was never stuck in a place of condemnation. That's the enemy's tool. I never got stuck in that place. I knew without a shadow of a doubt. Paul wrote in Romans 8, the devil wants to disqualify you. And the more self-awareness you have, the harder it might be for you because the closer you get to the light, which is Jesus, the easier it is to see sin. Which is why sometimes people, as they get closer to God, because of our human nature, find themselves less effective in the world. I have more consciousness of sin. And even John Edwards, third president of Princeton University, famous preacher in The Great Awakening, famous for sinners in the hands of an angry God, said infinite upon infinite, I'm sorry, the more insight I get into the depravity of my nature, the deeper and more impossible it is. So what I'm saying is you have to have the focus on God, not sin. And I think the answer is in Romans 6. I think they're going to put it up. We're going to read a few scriptures together. Romans 6, 4 through 11, if you want to turn. All right. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as, Je as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, are, we should also walk in the newness of life. For if we have been unified together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Good song. For he who has died has been freed from sin. We're going to come back and talk about this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
our focus isn't on sin, but being alive in Christ. It can be easy to focus on sin because of human nature, but God only illuminates the sin so you can do something about it. The focus is on Him. It's not what you've done. So let's walk through what we just read. How many know that Jesus died for us? That's basic stuff. We should. <laughs> let's just assume that we're going to operate under that understanding. That's first doctrine, 101. So God died for our sins, and then He uses us as a vessel. He's the potter, we're the clay. And that's like when breakthrough comes. God is using you. He gets the glory. Something's happening by the grace of God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not I, but the grace of God with me. So Christ died for you. Christ moves through you. We have to remember that Christ is in us. So we're going to substantiate this with some scripture. Romans 8.10 says that if, and if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Galatians 4.19, my, li my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Colossians 1.27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ. In you, the hope of glory. Okay, scriptures have substantiated that Christ is in you. Now, the fun part is, what does Christ mean? It comes from the Greek, Christos. It means anointed. Can't make this stuff up. We stood in the beginning and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for I am anointed. Christ is in you. You can end the debate. You're absolutely anointed. So Christ died for you. Christ moves through you. Christ is in you, but we can't stop there. We're not going to get all the way where we're supposed to go. We won't get to the high ground. We need to remember that Christ died as you. See, the great mystery of the substitution on the cross isn't that Christ died to give God a way to put up with us. We were condemned to death, so he had to die in our place. That means when he died, you died to sin. We just read it in Romans 6. For we are buried with him through baptism into death and then raised with him, which means even when we go into the water in baptism, it's a representation or identification of when he died, so did you to sin. When Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What he's affirming is the fact when Christ died, you died. This is the same thing as double jeopardy, I think, in the legal system. Ask Sam or Dwayne or Rick. There's a lot of barristers here. Um, what I'm trying to say is, you know, in, in, in the legal system, you can't be judged a second time for something that you were already paid the penalty for. You can't, can't be condemned to death yet again. So when Christ died as us, you can never be crucified again for sin. And so that's liberating because Jesus died as you. So when you get to the place where you say you're not qualified and believe more about what the devil thinks about you because of your past, you need to remember Christ died as you and now you're dead to sin. You've been made righteous. That is where you put your focus. It's one of my favorite lines to tell people. I'm pretty sure I've told some folks in the room. When you get to that place, say out loud, literally, that's no longer worthy of who I am or who I've become in Christ. It's like a little reminder 
until you come into full alignment with your spirit and that your mind is renewed. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is, excuse me, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You just keep saying it until it's a part of your ethos. And then when the devil comes to remind you, well, he's a little less effective or he doesn't get access. That's why transformation comes from renewing of your mind until alignment with the will of the Father because when you're born again, your spirit is brand new. It's your mind that's old and filled of junk from life. So you are anointed and not only are you anointed to someone or something, you're anointed to solve a problem. And we need to remember that the anointing isn't just for Ken's or Bethel-type signs and wonders. In fact, most of us aren't called to walk out that sort of extrovert type of anointing in the marketplace. If you're called to do business, most of the supernatural is subtle. Discerning of spirits. Words of wisdom, probably the biggest one. Words of knowledge. God gives us these gifts to enable us to take territory because we aren't called to stay in the wilderness. We're called to take the high ground. He's the God of the valley, and he's the God of the mountaintop. And he's inviting you to take hold of the victory that's already been won. Sometimes I think as Christians we have a poverty mindset. It's time we throw that off. Because our God is the God of absolute abundance. And when the people of God get it and operate in the anointing, I think that's when we can have the Bill Gates that God wanted to raise up. Literally could have been the gates of influence for the kingdom. But so many times we get fixated that we miss part of our assignment. I'm going to give you examples from both sides of the coin because we need worship songs. I just realized I'm chewing gum. Apologies. Uh, we need worship songs. That's how we do church. I love them. They give honor and praise to the Lord. They minister to us. Sometimes we need Christians to write amazing songs for the world to sing. I'm going to use Lauren Daigle as an example, and I hope I'm not falling into a trap because I've read some stuff. Some Christians hate on her. I don't know the woman, so we're just going to hypothesize for a minute that she loves the Lord. But she's played on a ton of secular stations. So the way that I think about it is, what kind of doors has she been invited to walk through that Chris Tomlin or Brandon Lake or Phil Wickham haven't been invited to walk through? Both of them are needed, and God uses both to bring about very different victories. The anointing is on you for your assignment, and remember, it's not one size fits all. So I'm not telling you to be overt, and I'm not telling you you have to be covert. I'm telling you there's an opportunity to operate in both. Another example, and I don't know if it's just more aware right now because, as Ken would say, thank the living Lord, it's football season. But right now, I literally, I can't turn around without seeing another guy talking about Jesus. It's unbelievable right now. They're praying in the end zone before games. They know they're being watched. They know they're being photographed. They're using their platform. And a great example, and I won't say his actual name for fear of embarrassment, but uh, Tua the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. Amazing, long-last Hawaiian name. That boy loves Jesus. He loves him. He will not start a sentence on the microphone without giving honor to Jesus Christ. He's ascended to a platform, and he's using it for maximum influence. 
God gave you the anointing for your assignment. You just have to walk in it. Hopefully some of that was helpful. I'm going to flip back to the gift of faith and tell a story that I have told from up here before, but honestly, it gets me every single time. And I even read it this morning, and it got me, and I probably will choke through it here. There's a man by the name of Michael Kratz, and he lives in Georgia, and he gets a prophecy that he's going to have a son, and that his son is going to be named Caleb, and that his son will follow in the same political footsteps as his father. Now, after hearing this prophecy, he runs for office in the state senate in Georgia, and he has a heart attack and dies. So he is flatlined. Nothing on the screen. No heartbeat. And as while he's flatlined, his wife Phyllis comes in with the prophecy he received, saying, the word of the Lord says you're going to have a son, and we haven't had a son. We're going to raise him together. You see that? It says together. You hear me? I said together. So she's prophesying the word of the Lord. The security guards are trying to remove her because the doctors want her out of there so they can continue the ineffective resuscitation efforts. And while all this is going on, he's out of his body. And he's standing before an ocean where mountains appear, and he's speaking to Jesus. And Jesus says, you're called to go into that one, and it's called government. And then Jesus says a salient line, but. And whenever heaven says but, you should really listen to what's coming next. You're called to go into that one, but there must be agreement. What he was saying was, I've got bigger plans than you dying today, but we, if only we could find somebody down there that would agree it isn't over yet. Meanwhile, his wife is still prophesying the word of the Lord, and he's with Jesus, and then this great big mountain appears in the background. He says, that's the mountain of my kingdom. Make no mistake, my kingdom is greater than all the kingdoms of this world. Because here's an interesting tension here. For all of us, we have the kingdom of God over all the kingdoms of this world, world, but God's calling you and inviting you and anointing you to be an invading force of his kingdom in the midst of this world. I'm going to say that again. We are being invited to be an invading force of his kingdom in the area that you're called in, in the area you're anointed in. All right, back down on earth, Phyllis Crotz takes her husband by the leg after 30 Four documented minutes without oxygen to the brain or a heartbeat. And as Jesus is saying, you're called to go into that mountain, her strategy shifts from prophesying the word of God to commanding the word of God. She says, Michael, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to come back into your body now. In that moment, he left the vision, came back into his body, and the heartbeat came on the screen. Beep, 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 beep. The doctor, not knowing what to do, having never seen a resuscitation of someone that had been flat-dined for over 30 minutes, turns to her and says, now you've done it. (laughs) He'll have to be forgiven for that. He's brain dead. How could you do that? He hasn't had oxygen to the brain for over 30 minutes. What have you done? So some time passes. The dust settles. The doctor gets his composure, and he says to Phyllis, he probably won't ever wake up. And if there's a miracle, key word, and he does, the best case scenario that you could ever hope for 
is he won't remember anything for 20 years. Now, Phyllis, it's like a real attractive lady. She's got a cosmetology degree. She turns to the doctor and says, you mean when he wakes up, he's going to think I'm 20 years younger? <laughs> Grabs him by the leg again and says, in the name of Jesus, I command your mind to be completely restored. At which point he inhales and speaks, where is my son Caleb? God had prophesied a son he hadn't had and the first words out of his mouth regarded the unfulfilled promise God gave him. Phyllis had the gift of faith to know the word of God was going to come to pass. It's hard to see through tears. She knew that she knew that she knew that she knew it wasn't over yet. She didn't have a strategy. She just started prophesying the word of the Lord. Now, if you want to see the dreams that you've buried and that Satan has tried to rob you of in your wilderness, you may have to move beyond holding on to the word and commanding the very thing that God said would happen to be made manifest in your life. And then death, including death of vision, death of marriage, death of relationships, death of career, will yield to the power of resurrection life. And God will put life back into you in a whole new level. Who's ready for that? I started with the fact that I said I wanted to stir your spirit. And I hope that maybe I was sent for just one. But I want to pray for us. And you don't have to come to the front or anything like that. But if you feel something inside about wanting to know what your anointing is or your calling, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I'm just going to pray for all of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die for us, to take our place, to be our substitute. And through that sacrifice, we now have direct access. And that you sent the Holy Spirit to dwell and remain with us. And Lord, we just choose today to operate in the anointing on our lives. Father, I ask that you would even just give a picture to folks now that are wondering where their anointing is. Lord, would you just bring it from their heart to their mind right now? I see the Lord moving on some of you even right now. Some of you are at a deep, deep peace. And I just say more. I speak favor over your people. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and move in power in our lives.
And I just ask for a double portion in the name of Jesus over your people. And we just thank you for your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.